0: So I enjoy traveling, but I really don't like flying. And here's why. The whole security check-in process drives me insane. Because since airlines started charging, most airlines started charging for bags, I like to fly with just my carry-on. But I'm also sort of a boy scout when it comes to, to packing, like always be prepared. So I have a tendency to overpack. And when you do that, what you do, you try to stuff as much as you can into your carry-on, but you also try to wear a lot of things, too. And so those of you that fly regularly know that if you have a lot of stuff on, that can be a nightmare trying to get through security. So I flew to D.C. a few weeks ago, and I had a lot of stuff. Like, I had a lot of stuff in my bag. I was taking a class out there, and I was going to go preach out there and hang out with friends. So I had a lot of stuff in my bag, and I was wearing clothes because it was like 10 degrees outside. And so getting through security was terrible, Like, I had to take my coat off. I had to take these boots off, which are, like, take, like, 10 minutes to lace up. I had to pull my computer out and my uh, iPad, and then I had to get my toiletries out, and I had to take my belt off. I felt like I had, like, 10 or 12 totes just trying to, you know, push through, and then everybody behind you is, like, angry because the most miserable place on the planet is standing in line at at TSA, right? And so you don't want to be that person holding up the line. So I'm trying with everything I can, you know, pulling my shoe off as I'm putting a bag in and just like this weird dance. It's miserable. I wanted to, I wish I would have showed up in like a t-shirt and shorts and flip-flops. It's like, who cares if it was 10 degrees out? For many of us, we try to follow Jesus the way that I try to go through the TSA checkpoint. Taking way too much with us. Trying to carry way too much we hold on to things that we should not be holding on to. So whether it's holding on to our sin, or whether it's holding on to security and comfort, whether it's holding on to our own status and maybe even our own good deeds and our our moral works so that we have a particular uh, position in front of people, whatever it may be, we like to hold on to things. And underneath a lot of that, is a pride and a self-sufficiency that likes to, to say, hey, I'm standing on my own two feet. I'm doing this myself. I got this. I'm a good person. Look at all I'm capable of. But as we read in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus calls us to a fundamentally different heart posture. Jesus calls us to take on the heart posture of a child. And he vividly brings this into focus in Mark ten thirteen through 16. This is what we read. Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For such belong the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. If you've ever held a baby in your arms, you're struck with just how vulnerable they are. And maybe if you're not used to it, it can can feel a little bit terror-inducing because you're like, am I going to break this thing? because babies are weak and they're vulnerable. They, they don't have any strength and power and skill and wisdom of their own to stand on. Babies are weak and vulnerable and must receive from others. But here's a beautiful thing about babies. They also are very trusting they're, they're very dependent, but they're trusting in the sense that they look to those who are more powerful than them to receive what they, they know that they need. And so there's this wonderful dependency that babies just sort of naturally have. You see, babies know that they're in need. Like if you, you have a baby, if you're a, a, a parent of a baby, it's not as if your son or daughter goes, ah, uh, you know what, mom? I don't need you to get me some food. I can make my own food. But babies don't go. No, mom, dad, you don't. You don't need to clothe me. I can go buy my own clothes. Babies never say, "I don't need my room anymore. I got a crib of my own across town." No, children are in absolute dependence, and they know their independence. They know their need, because they don't know how to be otherwise. And this is the fundamental identity and heart postures of disciples of Jesus. If you're a disciple of Christ, if you're a citizen of the kingdom, your heart posture and your very identity is that of a dependent child. We are children of God. We are children who know that we are weak and lowly. We're children who know that it is not our strength and our status and our wisdom and our skill that allows us to enter into the kingdom of heaven children who understand that we are utterly and absolutely dependent upon our heavenly father to provide what only he can provide. That is the heart posture of a disciple of Christ. That is the heart posture of one who is a citizen of the kingdom of God. So the question for you this morning is this, is that your heart? Is that the posture of your heart? Are you one that is in dependent need and you know your need? Or are you still standing on self-sufficiency? Are you still standing on self-made security? Are you depending upon your own skill and strength and wisdom? Are you like the man who comes to Jesus with this question? Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Man, this is a great question. This is a softball question for Jesus. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? But notice what he's saying What do I need to do? As this question so often is framed, it's in this sense of what is my performance, what is required of me and my performance to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus responds initially with a question. Why do you call me good? There is none good but God. Now, there's a a number of layers to to Jesus' first response, and we don't have time to get into them all, but, but here's essentially what he's doing. He is drawing attention to this guy's definition of good. Whoa, you're throwing this word out. Do you you understand what good is? What's your definition of good? Know that God is the standard of good. God is the definition of goodness. And then he quotes to him from the Ten Commandments. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. So in the commandments... We get a standard of good and evil, right and wrong, based in God's definition of goodness. And so he's asking this man to sort of check his external behavior against this standard. And notice how the guy responds. All of these I've kept since my youth. Like, the guy probably was feeling pretty good. I do these things. I keep the commandments. I follow them, Jesus. And so here we have a guy that that can sort of say, I check these boxes, but we have to wonder something here. If this guy kept the commandments so well, why does it say that he ran to Jesus in such desperation? Like it says he ran to Jesus and knelt in front of him, asking him this question. There's a sense of desperation in this guy's question. He, he's, he has kept these commandments, yet there's something stirring inside of him that would cause him to come to Jesus and say, hey, I, I need to know what I need to do. So so let's not be fooled by his sense of like, I'm doing all these things. There's something deep in his soul that's troubling him. And seeing the sincerity and earnestness of this guy, Jesus looks at him and it says he loves him. And Jesus is about to blow this guy's categories. He's about to undo this guy's sense of security and self-righteousness, but he does it in love. You see, There's no reason to believe that this guy was being a hypocrite. This guy probably was sincere. This guy was a good dude. He probably was a great husband. He's probably a great father. He probably was a great neighbor, a great boss. He probably checked all the boxes. But there was something wrong, and Jesus sees through his sort of veneer, and he loves him. Friends, here's something you need to understand. When Jesus comes to blow up your categories and blow up your sense of self... He's doing it out of love. He's doing it to set you free. And so he begins to press in with this guy. You lack one thing. Sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. In other words, let go of all your possessions. Let go of everything you've built your status and your security on and follow me. Make me the center of your life. This is not the answer the guy was looking for. This is not the answer that he wanted to hear. It says because he had a lot of possessions. I man, he had built for himself a really good life. He, he had built for himself a life of security and comfort. And, and he had done all of the good things that he needed to do in life. But Jesus is saying, you need to let go of all of that and come follow me. And because he saw all that that would mean, he walks away disheartened. He saw the cost of following Jesus and what it would, what it would mean. And he's like, I, I can't do that. And so he's disheartened, and he walks away. And as he walks away, Jesus looks around his disciples, and here's a teachable moment. And he tells them how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. You better believe that Jesus was sad that this guy walked away. Jesus was sad that this man would choose his wealth and his status and his security over following him. His heart was broken. And the disciples can't believe what Jesus is saying, how difficult it will be for those of wealth to enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus repeats himself and he uses a very vivid metaphor. Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Have you ever tried to thread a needle, taking a really thin piece of string and putting it through the eye of a needle? It's hard even with a little piece of string. Now imagine trying to move a thousand pound camel through that eye not going to happen. It's impossible. And Jesus is saying, you know, as hard as it would be for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, and everybody's like, that's ridiculous, Jesus. He's like, yeah, that's how hard it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And the disciples are like, what? Then who can be saved? So why do they ask this? What, what, what leads this man to walk away disheartened? And why do the disciples ask this? Well, then who can be saved? well, here's what Jesus is doing. He is undermining and undoing a faulty belief that was within Jewish culture. See, within the Jewish culture at the time, wealth was seen as this blessing from God because you lived righteously. So wealthy people... Now, of course, there were wealthy people who gained that uh, unrighteously, and they recognized that. But for wealthy people who tried to live righteous lives these were like the best of the people in society like if anybody was going to enter into the kingdom of god it would be the righteous wealthy the ones who it seemed that god had blessed and so if when jesus said it is harder for a wealthy person to go through the uh, the eye of a needle here's what the disciples heard the best of you it is impossible for you to enter the kingdom of heaven the very best of you impossible that's why the disciples go Well, then who can be saved? How is this possible? And Jesus says, what's impossible with man is possible with God. But to get there requires some deconstruction. To get there requires us to allow Jesus to unsettle us. You see, this man was disheartened because when Jesus asked him to sell all his possessions, it meant that he had to let go of all his status. He had to let go of all that he built. He had to let go of all the markers that pointed, hey, you're a good, righteous person. He had to let go of all of that. He was also disheartened because he had a lot of wealth. And wealth brought him security and comfort. Why is it difficult for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of God? Is it because wealth is inherently evil? No. No. But wealth is an intoxicating source of self-sufficiency Independence. Wealth offers a salvation of status and comfort and security that we like to grab. And Jesus is saying, You need to let go of that. Jesus is confronting self sufficiency and independence. Jesus is telling this man, You have to become like a child. You have to become utterly dependent, not standing on your own strength and your own status and your good deeds and your wisdom or even your wealth. But this was too much for this man. Jesus was trying to deconstruct his world and it was too much. much. His wealth, his possessions, his status, they were too important to him. He didn't want to enter the kingdom as a dependent child. Let me ask you, do you resonate in any way with this guy? Do you resonate in any way with, hey, I try to be a good person. Like, I care deeply about being a good person. And so I work hard to be a good husband or wife and to be a good parent. I, I work hard at my job. I don't rip people off. I treat people well. I'm honest. You think of all the, the checklist of what it means to be a good person, and you care deeply about those things. And yet, I wonder if there's still something stirring in your soul. I wonder if you ever wrestle with this question, am I good enough? Am I doing enough? I I try really hard, but is it enough? And so maybe your soul starts stirring, and so the question becomes, how do you know? Like, how do you know if you're good enough? Do you Google that? What's the exchange rate on enough good versus enough bad? So maybe you search the scriptures. Maybe you think, well, maybe the Bible has some answers. And so you go to scripture, you, you, you maybe have these rumblings, I've heard about who Jesus is, what does Jesus have to say? And this is what you find Jesus saying to you, let go of trying to enter the kingdom of God on your own. Let go of your own strength and your own status and your own good deeds and your own wisdom and own your own wealth. Let go of your self-righteousness. Look, we think self-righteousness is just for the stuck up people. No, all that means is I try to make myself righteous. So, my righteousness is based on my own works. Jesus says, let go of that. Let go of your self sufficiency. Receive the kingdom as a dependent child. Come follow me. And when Jesus confronts you with that, how do you respond? Okay, I'm going to let go. I'm going to let go of all that, Jesus. I'm going to follow you. Or do you bristle? Do, do, do you sort of push back on those things and and you think, no, I, I look, at, look at the life that I've built for myself. Look at the comfort and the security that I've built for myself. Look at the reputation and status that I have. You're asking me to, to let go of all of those things to follow you, to not put my trust in those things, to not build my sense of identity in those things? And so I wonder if you push back against Jesus. I wonder if you're like this man who will walk away disheartened because the cost is too great if that's you if that's been you let me ask you well what do you do with the angst that's in your soul what do you do with that nagging question am i good enough am i doing enough at the end of the day when i stand before god whoever god is what's on the other side of that what do you do with that question now you may also ask this question well, what was wrong with this guy? What was wrong with the way that he lived? I mean, he was moral. He, he kept the commandments. He worked hard. And you may ask of yourself, well, what's wrong with the way that I live? I'm moral, and, and I try to do my best, and I try to follow this sense of morality that even follows the Ten Commandments. What's wrong? Very good questions. But if you look closely, we see Jesus exposing the hole in this man's moral goodness, See, Jesus asked this man to give away the markers of his status, to give up his security, to no longer stand on his achievements, all for the sake of the kingdom and the sake of following him. Right there, there's this rubber meets the road moment. What has this man's heart? What most has this man's heart? Is it his wealth and his social status and his self-made security, or is it Jesus in the kingdom of God? See, underneath the issues of morality, you have to ask this question, why are you doing it? What has your heart? See, when Jesus confronted with this, this man with this decision and he walked away, he answered this question. He, he answered the question, who has his heart? And it exposed that his morality was selfish. His morality was about himself. You see, he wanted to enter eternal life on his terms. You see, no matter how well-intentioned this man might have been, he was selfish because he didn't want to humbly depend upon God. He didn't want to depend upon someone greater than himself. See, he wanted to inherit eternal life through his own accomplishments. Jesus and his glory didn't have this man's heart. And so he wanted the pursuit of righteousness to bring him material benefits and wealth, more than he wanted, Jesus himself. And so look, this man may have been keeping the commandments 6 through 10, but do you know which one he was breaking? The first one, the most important one. You shall have no other gods before me. This man had made his wealth, his comfort, his security, even his moral standing, idols. Those things had his heart more than Jesus, more than the Lord did. And so he was breaking the first and greatest commandments. Jesus lovingly exposed this guy's sense of goodness and morality, explains why Jesus first asked this question, how do you understand what is good? So let's be clear here. Good deeds, righteous living are absolutely essential for a disciple of Christ. But they're not the means by which we receive the kingdom of heaven. They're they're not the means by which we enter the kingdom of heaven because they can't be. Because hear me on this. Hear me very closely. If you don't hear anything else this morning, hear me on this. Like In our natural state, yes, we sin. And you may have heard a lot about that. We're sinners. But even our good works, even our attempt at doing good things, in our sin, what happens? It becomes selfish. Because it becomes about us and about earning. And we, we try to come up with a, the, the status to enter into the kingdom of God independent of God. So even in our good works, we're rebelling against God. That is why we have to be humble children. That is why we have to receive. Because we're utterly rebellious, apart from God transforming our hearts, down to the very good things that we do. We cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Also think of it this way. If you loving somebody else is so that you can gain acceptance from God, are you really loving that person or are you using them? Like if I love someone to fill some emotional need in my heart, am I loving them or am I using them? So this gets to the core of why we do what we do. Like, okay, so kids in the room, if your parents ask you to do something, let's say clean your room, help out your brother and sister, so some, something where they're just saying, hey, can you, can you go do this for me? If you only do it because you receive a reward, is that loving your parents? No. If, if the only reason you're going to do something good is so that you can get something back, that's not love. But if you're motivated, hey, I love my mom and dad. And so I want to I honor them. I, I love my brother and sister, and I want to honor them regardless of what I get in return. That is real love. That is true righteousness. How do we get there? How do, how do we get to a place where our hearts are free to do that? That is a good question. Jesus told this man, one thing you lack, your heart, what your heart most loves, is not centered on me. Your identity is not found in me. Your security and your hope are not found in me. Let go of all of that and come follow me. Find your identity in me. Find your security in me. Find your comfort in me. Treasure me. Worship me. Look, following Jesus is not about going out and being a good moral person so we can go get all this material benefit. Following Jesus is not trying to go be a good person So you can stack your good versus your bad and hope that the good outweighs the bad. That's not following Christ. That's not the Christian life. If you're going to follow Jesus, you have to humbly become a child. You have to humbly become dependent. Notice what Jesus says. This is how you receive the kingdom. We have to receive the kingdom. We don't earn it. We receive it. When we don't receive it, When we're trying to bring all of our trophies and all of our good works and all of our status and all of our security through the line. The only way we receive is by receiving what Christ has done for us. See, this is the beautiful truth of the gospel. This is the beautiful hope of the gospel. Is that when we set aside our good works, when we set aside our good deeds, when we set aside our self-righteousness and our self-sufficiency, we depend on something far greater See, Christ in love came from heaven and he perfectly performed, he kept the law perfectly in a way you and I never could do. And he did that for us. And then he died on a cross willingly to pay the penalty that you and I deserved for our sins and our rebellion. But then he was resurrected in glory and victory. And if you are in Christ, here is the good news for you. Not only have your sins been forgiven, not only has that debt been paid, But the righteousness of Christ has been given to you. And so now you stand before God, loved and accepted. You are a child because of Christ. You stand before God as Christ stands before God. When he sees you, he sees the righteousness of God. You don't have to earn that, you receive that as a gift. And you cannot lose that, you don't have to perform for that. The beauty of the gospel is you are loved in Jesus. You are kept in Jesus. And for those of you who follow Christ, like there is a sense where, yeah, you have received God as a, as a dependent child, as a humble child. Like you've received uh, in, in, in a proper way, but let's not mistake the fact that we can slip back into this. Like we can still run around and try to perform, Right? We can still try to find security and comfort in other things, and other people. We can still think that, okay, Jesus wiped my slate clean, but now it's up to me to perform so God keeps liking me. We can still think that, that it's up to us and our good deeds to stay in God's good graces. That, hey, I have to perform as a parent. I have to perform as a spouse. I have to perform in church. I have to do all of these good things if I want God to like me. All the while, we're missing the wonderful truth of the gospel. God loves you and he likes you, not based on your works, not based on what you do, but because of Christ. And what that does for us, sets us free. Sets us free. Because here's what Jesus tells us. There's a blessing in letting go of security. Jesus says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. So is Jesus sort of promising prosperity gospel stuff here? No, let's not cheapen what Jesus is telling us here. When you follow Christ, when you let go of the self-righteousness and self-sufficiency, it's going to cost. Sometimes it costs relationships. And that is hard. That is sobering. Sometimes it costs significantly in your circumstances. But here's the good news. When, when you follow Jesus, when Jesus brings you into the family, he brings you into a community. And you have brothers and sisters. And guess what? What's yours is theirs and what's theirs is yours. Well, what is Jesus talking about? You you gain family and you gain houses and lands. What he's talking about here is in the church, we love and support one another. When, When you're part of the church, you're not dependent upon your own resources anymore. You have brothers and sisters, you have a family, and all of that is at your expense. If you are ever in need, there it is for you. And conversely, if Jesus is your hope, if Jesus is your salvation, if Jesus is your righteousness, if you don't have to perform anymore, if you don't have to prove yourself anymore, if your hope is eternal, then you can give your stuff away. You can love and bless people. You can give your life to see that they thrive in Christ. You don't have to hold on to it anymore. And so there's this wonderful dynamic that Jesus points us to that when we let go of our stuff, when we stop being self-sufficient, We enter into this community and this family that is free, and we care for one another, and we love one another. So here's a question for you. If you're not experiencing the church in this way, what are you holding on to? Either what are you holding on to that you will not allow other people to love and care for you, or what are you holding on to that you will not give your stuff away to love others? Oh, church, this is a beautiful picture of the, the societal consequences that when we're set free by the gospel, the community consequences that when we're set free by the gospel. So there's wonderful benefit on the other side of this if we're willing to let go of our self-sufficiency. And so, church, let's be humbly dependent on our Heavenly Father. Let us receive the kingdom that Christ has bought, brought to this world. Let's receive it as children. Let's move away from status-seeking. Let's move away from self-righteousness and self-sufficiency and self-centered agendas and self-built security. And let's walk in the status we have in Christ, loved, accepted, righteous, holy. And walking in that, let us love each other and serve one another. Let's give our lives, let's pour out our lives that others may know Christ and be brought into the family of God. Amen?